Welcome to the next episode of the Color of Us podcast. Today, I'm here with Raj Tani, who was born and raised in New York and is a proud multiracial American of Indian, Italian, and Puerto Rican ancestry. Raj is a storyteller and enjoys writing on identity, race, history, food, health, nature, entertainment, and current events shaping our culture. Beyond writing, he has hosted numerous live events from introducing Alfred Hitchcock's Shadow of a Doubt at the Modern Museum of Modern Art and presenting Paul Joey with Frank Sinatra's granddaughter, A.J. Lambert. He also reported for public television, ZTV, and Namaste America News. Thank you so much for being here today, Raj, and I'm so excited for our conversation. Thank you, Sonia. I'm so excited too. First, I wanted to begin by congratulating you for your new book, A Colorful Palette. That's such an amazing accomplishment, and you should be extremely proud of yourself. For our listeners, it's currently up and available for pre-order. I'm so excited about it. So um, thank you so much uh, for having me, and I'm just thrilled, thrilled to be on. So I know you enjoy writing about a variety of subjects, like what was said in your bio. What is it specifically that wanted you to tell their story through recipes and a memoir based around food? Well, you know, food has always been such an important part of, um, you know, just a passion of mine, but also um, it's kind of serves as an olive branch to helping understand the cultures I grew up around. And in my family growing up, you know, conversations about race and identity were always extremely difficult to talk about because everybody had different opinions and there were different pains um, in my in all of my family members experiences but food was always this kind of common ground that served as a comforting place and a a way to open up more conversation because when I was a kid you know if they had a difficult time talking about themselves well if I was assisting them in the kitchen and asking them questions about the dishes particularly my mother and my grandmother um, they would feel a little more comfortable opening up to me about their own experiences because I have come to learn that each dish in our in my family tells a story. So I mean, my Puerto Rican and Italian American mother uh, is a master at cooking chicken curry. So as a kid, it got me curious, well, how did that come to be? And so, you know, chopping onions with her or learning to marinate the chicken would allow me to uh, listen and ask questions and learn about her life. And that was the same thing for my uh, Puerto Rican grandmother and how she learned to master Italian food because it was an entry point into understanding her husband, my Italian American grandfather's family. So food has kind of served as this uh, entrance way into understanding not only the people who I love, but myself. Um, so it, it's great. I, you know, I just, it's, and I still uh, cherish all the meals in my life. And my wife and I have learned to cook the meals ourselves that have been passed down to us. So yeah, it's special. It's really wonderful. One question that's been emerging more and more in recent years is this question of what does it mean to be an American? And although our country is getting more and more diverse, there's still a fraction of Americans who wish our country remained monolith. In your opinion, how can we use things so simple like food to help celebrate and show the value of diversity? You know, I think about this one a lot, and it's a good question, um, because I grew up always feeling, you know, never like a complete person because I was mixed. And, um, you know, I always wanted to just be one thing because I feel like my life could be more easily definable and I could fit into one category. 
Um, but over the years, I learned that fitting into multiple categories is actually a privilege. And um, it, it allows me to see the world from a better vantage point than most people, because I have more compassion, I think. And I think, um, you know, I think other multiracial Americans uh, feel the same way, at least I hope so. Um, and I found that food is um, a good tool, because I've had friends who you know, I've never had Indian food before because they're so scared because it's spicy and because it looks funny. And, you know, they'll come over when I was a kid, they would come over my house and then, you know, eat my mom and grandma's cooking. And then, you know, they realized, no, it was actually delicious. And, you know, you turn them onto a life, a lifelong love of this food. And because of that, it will make them curious to learn more about the culture and, and them ask questions. I mean, what food does is it, it makes you ask questions if you're curious enough to know about the origin of how this food came to be shaped and developed uh, by the people and the culture and what it represents. And like, uh, you know, we in America talk about turmeric as this thing that is now a common health supplement. But in my house, you know, turmeric was all over our walls and our clothes <laughs> because it was just an ingredient that was part of our weekly meals, you know, Um I don't even remember your original question. <laughs> oh, the original question was on how food can help us connect and show the value of diversity, which I think you talked about. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I think um, I think food allows us to ask ask questions, you know, and I think it breaks down barriers because it's 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 an easy entry point. Um, and it's not as intimidating as, um, you know, some other aspects of a culture that may seem very difficult to understand where food, everyone can understand it because we all consume it. No, definitely. I think in terms of my own life as a multiracial American, some of the best conversations that I've had with people are about different meals that I've been eating from my various cultures that others haven't been exposed to. So you're definitely right that there is this kind of easier entry point than something like um, a religious experience or a cultural dance or something along those lines, whereas food is more tangibly accessible to people. Yeah. Have you had those kind of experiences as well with food, with friends or outsiders? Yes, definitely. One of the things that I like to do a lot with my family is invite people over and have some of the different dishes that my parents and I will cook. And that way, it's kind of an entry point for those to kind of gain more understanding into my culture. Where I live, there's not a lot of diversity and being multiracial is still kind of a newer thing that people are accepting. So sometimes to start those conversations on acceptance earlier, I like inviting people to my home and then showing them to different flavors and cuisines that belong with the diverse upbringing. Oh, that's so cool. I love that you do that. That's really, that's tremendously important. And I'm sure you're, you're enlightening a lot of people in your life. I really hope so. And I think it is working. Food definitely has that power to connect. Yeah, totally. Absolutely. One of the things that you kind of touched on in the answer to your previous question was how as multiracial individuals, we often feel this pressure to conform, to choose one box to define our racial identity and cultural background. How did you reflect on the themes of conformity in your book? And if you have any advice, could you give some to listeners who might feel as though they have to fit their identity into one neat little box? Yeah, um, this is a 
big theme in the book and in a lot of my writing um, because what I've come to learn is the more you try or the more society tries to squeeze you in a box and then you try to conform to that box, you know, the more you realize you're never going to fit in. And I think what I try to drive home in the book is that, you know, life is, life is a mess in general, you know, for all of us one way or another, it's messy. Um, but that's also a beautiful thing because why should it just be so, you know, single minded, single culture, that's boring, you know, like, I think it took me so many years to realize that no, in fact, my life is beautiful because it's not even and perfectly crafted into one, you know, uh, historical understanding of oneself. No, it's, it's super confusing. And to this day, you know, it's, it's, it's a journey of trying to understand where you fit in and then accepting the fact that, no, no, you don't fit in. No, no, you don't want to fit in. That's the whole point. You know, you feel, once you realize that and accept that, you f there's a sense of pride because, in fact, you are the coolest rebel uh, you can ever want to be in a society. Who wants to fit in? Fitting in is so boring. Um, and so I think um, throughout the book, I kind of go in and out of those uh um, that kind of confusion, but then also this acceptance um, and taking ownership of the fact that um, having these cultures in your life and having this crazy mixture, in fact, enhances it. It doesn't take away from it, you know, because I think like going to pujas on the weekend and family parties and then going to school where there wasn't as much diversity, you know, probably how how you grew up as well. Uh, you realize only maybe with time that like, wait a minute, I'm having more fun, you know, around my cultures than I am in school. So like, it, I, th I think it's a lifelong kind of analysis, I guess, like self-analysis, like, you know, accepting the fact that it's not clean and neat, you know, I think... <laughs> I know, I know I've, I've said it now a million times, but like, it's true. It's like being, having a messy life is actually way more interesting than having, um, you know, a neat and tidy one. <laughs> no, that's such valuable insight. I think sometimes what happens when I look at advice from multiracial individuals is sometimes it can gear towards, here's how you can better fit in. And there's a lot of advice that I see online of, people with good intentions saying, oh, explore your cultural background and know exactly what percentage you fit in with this. Maybe take a DNA test and find that you're 5% this and 24% this and 50% this and so on. And I think oftentimes with that kind of advice, multiracial individuals, we start to feel more like, oh, we have to wrap up our identity in neat little categories rather than just letting it blend in with different cultures in our lives. And I think you're right. Food is a wonderful way to do that. And so are community events. Yeah. And I almost don't want to take one of those. I don't know about you, but I almost don't want to take yeah. one of those. Yeah. Because you now, you know, you, you embrace, once you really embrace who you are, like, I don't, I don't care to know what I might be in my ancestry or my lineage because I love all the parts of me and I don't, I don't want I don't want to change that now. Like, you know, um, not because I'm not curious, but because um, being multiracial is probably the coolest thing 
you can be like it's it makes it's like it's a superpower you know it's it, it can help you see so many perspectives of the world and people and humanity and um um, I wouldn't have it any other way at this point in my life. If you asked me when I was younger, you know, and you'll if you read the book, like you'll see that I struggled with it. But no, I mean, it's the most badass thing you can do. <laughs> no, I agree 100%. <laughs> so in one of the reviews for your cookbook, transitioning to a bit of a more serious topic, the writer referenced a phrase that you use throughout it called the Great American Experiment. I think when we hear that, there's a lot of different connotations it can have depending on the individual. So I was wondering if you could talk about what that phrase means to you. Yeah, I think that I think that person was um, maybe quoting me or maybe not. But I think what I love to think about this country is that it, it's truly an experiment. I mean, if you look at um, if you look at the way we've developed and I, it's it's like it's this constant trial and error. It's like, you mm -hmm. know, we come in here, uh, you know, our forefathers of this country come and take it over and take it away from other people who were originally here. Um, but then, you know, it's this constant uh, battle of uh, what does it mean to be an American? And each generation has to ask that question. And um I don't think it's ever really been done before in human history to see the way a nation like this has developed um, because these, because aside from native Americans, there are nobody here is originally from this land geographically. So we're all, when they, when they call it a melting pot, I mean, it truly is a melting pot. We're all jumping in the pot and we're all swirling around and seeing what comes of it. And so it's funny when people try to hold on to what they deem as originally American, because all of us are immigrants and all of us are kind of experimenting along the way, generation to generation. Um, and I think that's a, that's a really cool thing too. I mean, and it helps you understand, um, you know, why we have the problems we do when it comes to race and identity, because people have a hard time coming to terms with that experiment and understanding it and um, accepting it. And I think that we should look at it differently that no, this is in fact a fascinating time in human existence these past few hundred years. And we should be thinking about it much differently. Like, no, we're continuing to evolve. Um, like my father and uh, Indian Americans, and I'm not sure about your family when they first came here, but when he came here in 1976, um, it was only after the Immigration Act of 1965 that Indian immigrants really started to come over here in droves along with other Asian groups. And, you know, that's a generation or two now removed. And now people like us exist and have a different kind of American heritage. For the better, I think. I think it's wonderful. Uh, what do you think? <laughs> yes, I've had the same experience. So my father immigrated from India close to a similar time. And he talks often about how when he first came to America, although there was diversity because they uh, he moved and lived in Chicago for a long time. So there was a lot of different cultural diversity and enclaves a lot of it was concentrated within each group. And it wasn't until recent years and when he met my mom, who's Irish and Swedish American, that he started trying to expand beyond just, okay, 
all the immigrants coming need to stay in this one fixed vicinity. And then all the immigrants coming from Europe need to go over here. And these kind of socially conceived bubbles and realizing that, no, what is part of being American is branching beyond this bubbles. Yes, we're a melting pot, but being in a melting pot doesn't mean every person stays in their own little corner. We have to broaden our perspectives and try to reach other cultures, which at least for me, um, growing up and being raised in Arizona, I think throughout my life, I still saw that as a struggle in my state where although we have racial and cultural diversity, there's still a pushback to accept it in a larger sense and embrace each other's cultures, which I think is a missed opportunity. But at least in recent years, I feel as though it's been getting a bit better. I'm not sure if that's your perspective or not either. I think in some ways it has certainly gotten a lot better and more accepting. In other ways, you know, you can't change everybody. I mean, people are going to be ignorant. Um, and that's okay, too. You know, I mean, it it keeps you humble, I think, I mean, because you can't control the mass populace into thinking the way you do, even if, you know, you feel that your stance is way more progressive than someone else's because they may think completely differently. I mean... That's all. That's the pain and the beauty of being a human is that you're never going to see eye to eye on everything. Um, and it, and after all this time, we still can't accept that. Um, uh, that's fascinating, though. Arizona. I mean, like, are there Indian restaurants where you live? I'm curious. Yes, there are. Um, more and more have been emerging recently, which is really nice. But I think when I was growing up, maybe one or two, but. Now it's getting better. I think there's more diverse restaurants. There's more openness with cultural experiences. So for instance, there's a vibrant Mexican-American community in Arizona. And every Thursday of the month, I want to say, in downtown Phoenix, there is some type of cultural celebration put on by that community. And the streets just come alive. And it's really beautiful. And that's something that I'm happy to see. But I think you are right. There's still a faction of people that want to remain ignorant. And the word is escaping me, but I'm thinking of a French word. And it refers to when a certain faction of society becomes more progressive, the other faction that's not in support of that idea pushes back even further. And I think that's what I've been seeing, at least in Arizona. And when I look at the news on a national scale, where Although there's been great strides in embracing diversity, there's always this group of people that, for whatever reason, does not want to get on and see the beauty that different cultures have. Oh, it's so true. Um, and what's funny is that, you know, my story takes place in New York, which you think would be the most open-minded place in the country, given its history of uh, immigration and being the melting pot, as they like to. Right. As New Yorkers like to um, proudly say they are, um, but where I grew up, uh, where my family is from, mainly in the city in the Bronx and Queens, but where I grew up on Long Island, I mean, there were invisible lines of segregation that existed from town to town. And uh, for the most part, they do still exist there in one way or another. And I'm not saying that they're everyone's closed minded, but there are certainly people who are very much happy to be closed minded. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I heard someone told me that and I, I don't know if this is true or not, but it could be that that term not in my backyard. I heard that it originated in Long Island. And when I heard that, I said, well, it's completely um, 
you know, believable because um, I grew up around it. And I write about that a lot in the book about how people had and still have a hard time coming to terms with people who are different. And there's this, there's, there's clear uh, discomfort. And, um, and then I, I, I would subsequently feel uncomfortable, but then now I've learned to uh, embrace making other people feel slightly uncomfortable because it's okay. You know, it's okay. We're humans, you know, like challenge people a little bit, as long as you're not hurting anybody, you know, as long as you're, 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 you know, ask questions. It's okay. I mean, it's good to debate, but you know, as long as we can all try to figure each other out in a respectable manner, it's okay to pose uncomfortable questions to each other, I think. But of course, there's always people who want to take it to each other. <laughs> I think you're right, though. Oftentimes, for being multiracial or multicultural, the history has been this wasn't allowed. So if you're multiracial, multicultural, in an interracial relationship, just be quiet about it and exist. And I think it's getting better with the younger generation, at least with my peers, but for people in my parents' generation or uh, older, I think there's still this kind of, oh, we should be quiet about this. Don't make eye contact. Don't talk about being interracial. Don't talk about having a multicultural family. And for us who are in the younger generation, I think it's really important to kind of dissect that stigma and start having these conversations about yes being multiracial is wonderful yes being multicultural is a great experience here's the different things in my cultures that I can share with you because of my heritage and things like what you're doing with your book are a really important step in having that conversation well I appreciate that and what you're doing with your podcast is extremely important and um it's funny you know um I wouldn't i I would be curious to know about your parents' experience, but you know, the more all these articles that I write and the book and everything, like my mom, my dad, they always tell me, like, you know, it's so interesting the way people were thinking about race and identity these days because they said when we were growing up, they just didn't think about it that much. And I, although we had plenty of pains and struggles, I think you know, like my grandma, I always like to say is kind of like a rebel. She didn't know it. Like she's a Puerto Rican woman marrying my Italian grandfather in the Bronx in the fifties. And yeah. there were definitely comments and some struggles, but she didn't care. She did it anyway. And then my mother married my father in a Hindu temple in Queens. And then my grand, my mother's parents, and they showed up to that Hindu temple. And you'd think in 1980, that would be uh, very difficult for them. But to their credit, and I wonder this about other uh, multiracial families, um, kind of these people we now revere as heroes, but maybe in their own time, they were just in love and wanted to, and didn't think too much into it like the way our generations do. Um, you know, they just went along with it, they accepted it. And if they had comments, maybe they didn't always say it. And, you know, sometimes I think what what I like, what I, what I, what, what's important, I think, to talk about is that you know, when we think about race and identity and we think about prejudice, it's not always so in your face, you know, it's not always so, it's not always so uh, cinematic. It's it's not always so dramatic, you know, prejudice and racism can be very nuanced and um, um, it's not always so easy to showcase. Mm -hmm. And um, so I feel like there's a lot of heroes of generations who have come before us who don't get the credit because they're not, they're just not talking about it and they're not as open about it. 
they certainly were there doing it and living it. Um, do you do you ever ask your parents what it was like for their experiences? I think it's definitely what you said, where although perhaps like when my parents got married, it was legal to be uh, in an interracial relationship. So there wasn't any direct like, racism in legislation against them. But there was, you're right, there's still that kind of nuanced cultural stigma against marrying someone from a different race. And I don't think my parents thought about it too much. I mean, of course, my mom flew to India when she married my dad and she had to ask her Irish Catholic grandmother if, oh, is it okay to marry a Hindu man and everything. But to her credit, she said, yeah, I mean, as long as you're in love, that's what matters. So you're right, there are these kind of unsung heroes and we can look back in our own families and see that. And it just took two people being in love and not really caring about what society had to say about it. Totally. I love that. Yeah. Your parents are, sound awesome. <laughs> and your grandparents are I'm sure are awesome too. Um, you know, it's funny. It's like, I feel like we, our society likes to focus on all the villains out there and all the jerks, but I feel like for the most part, you know, there are so many, there were so many cool people in history, you know, that we never get in, we never get to give them enough credit um, and I mean, every generation likes to take ownership of the fact that we're making things better and more progressive, but, um, you know, there's all sorts of people, you know, in every period of history, you know, um, so, I mean, I, we have so much to be thankful for, for the families, you know, who, who came before us. And I think they probably all instilled a lot of courage in us as well. You know, which is why we're able to talk about it so proudly now in this day and age. Yes, I definitely agree. So as a final question, throughout the la throughout your book, you include reflections on your own upbringing, which we've talked about, and what food means to your identity. I was wondering, when you wrote this book, was there a particular memory that you knew you wanted to include that came to mind or that left a strong impact on you? And could you share that if so? There are a lot of memories. Um... That stood out in my mind, which is what motivated me to write the book. But, you know, like, I mean, if I can choose one, uh, being 14 years old on 9-11 was really um, formative for me because um, it allowed me to see the way we treat people of color very directly um, and villainize people, for sure. I mean, that's what I couldn't understand and wrap my head around is that suddenly all the the, the few brown kids that were in my uh, school, you know, we're being picked on and beaten up. And, you know, 7-Eleven employees nearby were being, you know, beaten up or murdered, even. I mean, then this happened. Um, and it was very difficult. And I saw the way we separate each other very distinctly for the first time. Um, you know, whereas most of it's nuanced, um, this was very clear. Um, and it bothered me a lot. And, um, you know, what I write about in the book is I remember coming home on 9-11 and my mom and grandma, who I love, and I, you know, were my personal heroes, you know, they were watching the news and everyone was blaming, quote unquote, the Muslims and the Arabs. And I saw the way they kind of um, also were fearful based on what they were watching on TV. And how we, I remember having this argument with my grandma about it. And kind of making her out to feel like, you know, how dare she question that. But I also, reflecting, see that 
you know, fear can do a lot of things to us and it can make us force us to put people in boxes that we necessarily didn't think of before who belong in, you know, uh, to be viewed in certain ways. Um, and my grandma, who was one of the most open-minded people in that moment, you know, I felt very strongly against her opinion. Um, so I think it was me coming to terms with the fact that I could forgive her and she can forgive my bratty teenage self in that moment. Uh, the fact that we were all just looking out for each other and that we're all just really scared and that, you know, what was happening to us only miles away from where we lived, you know, was terrible. And, um, confusing but it, with time it allows us to uh grow and learn from those experiences and uh you know in the end of that chapter you know because it's a memoir so but i'll but i put recipes at the end of each chapter that were personal to me and so she made this um she just made rice and beans you know for me which is a puerto rican style dish but um because it was like her way of a peace offering and you know I cherish that now in retrospect you know what she was trying to do in that moment mm. <laughs> reminds me of course I didn't live through the same experience and I'm so sorry for all of that and having to grow up in that time must have been very anxiety inducing as a person of color trying to navigate how different people were being treated in response so that uh, was definitely something that uh, was challenging to go through. And I'm glad that you were able to reflect now on it later and learn from the experience. I think when it comes to food, just like you said, tying it back, whenever I have little arguments with my dad, he's he's quite American, I think, but in some ways he's still very much an immigrant father. And he usually whenever say he's sorry or we'll have like a, big stereotypical American talking about the situation, processing and moving on. But anytime after an argument, he'll knock on my door and be like, Sonia, I made sambar, um, come out for dinner when you want. And I think that's always just such a sweet, heartwarming memory for me to reflect on when I think about what was like growing up in these two different cultures and how food was central to everything. It's a good morning, a good night, and I'm sorry. And it's really powerful. Yeah, you couldn't have said it any better. Um, was there Italy involved, though, with that sambar? My dad doesn't make Italy, unfortunately. <laughs> I love it, but I don't know how he thinks about it. Just asking. I just figured <laughs> <laughs> that, That's great. That's great, Sonia. It's awesome. Props <laughs> to your dad. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much for your time today. It was so wonderful having this conversation and I can't wait to share it with our listeners. Thank you, Sonia. Thank you for allowing me to come on and speak about my life. It really means a lot. And I was really happy to learn about yours as well.